0: We were young until we went, but the books stay the same. <laughs> re-reading, re-reading the books? We establish in this book that there is a multiverse.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: clearly, Marvel stole all of its ideas from
1: from Chronicles and Narnia, obviously. <laughs>
0: Which is very interesting, so we get to this idea that there are multiple worlds and theoretically they all have their version of Aslan and it's just, it's a very curious idea. It really blows up the theology of these books, that there are more worlds than one and Aslan seems like he's able to use his powers across universes which I suppose would fit with this idea that Aslan is just the Narnia's version of
1: god yeah it is very interesting because we like a lot of religions christianity very much like puts humanity in our world as like this is what god created and we are created in his image and that sort of thing and by having all of these different worlds that you know supposedly the same god created that kind of like just, like, blows that up, right? No, for, like, no longer are we so special. I guess we get to rule over this world, but that's only because we brought evil into it when it was first born. And Aslan's like, you're gonna make up for it by, like, ruling it, which doesn't quite make sense to me, but sure.
0: Yeah, that does seem odd because it's just like so there is this kind of thinking that's established where aslan chooses all the different creatures that he's going to give the ability to speak and have higher consciousness or whatever
1: how does he choose them
0: he just he just boops certain ones yep but it does fit with this idea of the chosen people you know like why are the israelites the chosen people Uh, it's just that well because the israelites wrote that story. But
1: Right, but I actually want to pause right here really quick um and say we should talk about what like branch of Christianity these books are because I'm very unclear on that.
0: I will happily discuss that. So I mean you get this idea of the chosen people, but then it's like the humans are still the more chosen people because <laughs> right. even though they in they essentially invaded this land, they're also given the right to rule over it. And it's like, uh, like there's a ghost right behind me. Isn't there? You know, you were talking last time about the imperialist kind of vibes going on in the background. Like, I think they definitely get a lot more ramped up here. But I will say that, like, it feels mostly nitpicky to sort of explore that because I don't think C.S. Lewis was necessarily conscientious. Of that, it's just, if you break it down a little and think about it, it's like, okay, this is kind of weird. This doesn't really make sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, okay, cracking open another Diet Coke. So that's what that sound is.
0: Perfect. <laughs> Nothing better. Tastes like
1: the floor of a movie theater. But yeah, I I thought it was interesting because I was thinking about that, but I was also thinking about, like, you know, certain branches uh, of Christianity believe that, in predestination, the idea that, like, some of us are predestined to go to heaven. Some of us are predestined to go to hell. And your choices essentially don't matter. So I was like, is that kind of what's being alluded to here? That like, these animals are like the predestined ones. But I don't think that that falls in line with the rest of the Christianity that's, um, we're given in other books, especially where it seems like your choices do matter. So I'm like very confused.
0: And I, I, do I need to replay that quote about free will from C.S. Lewis here?
1: Oh, that's true.
0: It's very clear that C.S. Lewis believed in free will. It's unclear to what degree these animals have it. It seems like he's suggesting that they do, because when he gives them the ability to speak, he says, but don't go back to trying to be like those other beasts, or else you'll lose those abilities, which I think is very cleverly illustrated with Uncle Andrew, where he becomes, in, in, yes. in a sense, a lot more beastly, and in, in one of the most pedantic passages <laughs> of the entire book, talking about what a f- <laughs> idiot he is, for just closing himself off to the truth. And it's like, okay, Mr. Christian, we get it. You think we're dumb for not believing.
1: I didn't mind that as much, because I think it also works on the level of if anyone who chooses not to accept what's not in front of them, like what's right, what's right in front of them is making themselves more stupid. Right. Like, I mean, uh, we can get into a lot of our politics here, but like, you know, there are people that no matter what you put in front of them will be like, no, that's not a thing. Sexism doesn't exist. Racism doesn't exist. And those things exist. But you know what there, if they keep telling themselves their own narrative, that, that's all they're ever going to hear.
0: Look at you, you liberal snowflake talking politics on here. But I, I agree. I mean, I feel like there are ways to expand that out and apply it to just in general. I do think the way he words it and the way he describes it, at least for me, it's very much this bent that he's looking at like the quote unquote intellectuals who just refuse to sort of see the arguments for Christianity, and it's like, okay, I get it. You're a devout Christian. you're gonna argue what you believe in. That's fine. It's just that those are the moments which were especially missed for me because it really took me out of the narrative. It's like, okay, he's got this agenda and he's going for it here. But, yeah, so it's it's unclear who has free will, to what degree they have free will. It's like, there's this weird hierarchy hierarchy that's established between the animals and the humans, the, the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, that is never really fully explored, at least in either of these books so far. And it's like, it leaves a lot more questions. Which is kind of ironic, because this book, the whole purpose was to answer questions, and I feel like I have more questions than before. Which is both a good thing and a bad thing.
1: But I feel like... The, the questions are better questions, right?
0: I would agree with that. I think in the first book, it's really more like, that doesn't make sense. Why is that happening? In this book, it's like, oh, I wonder what that's about. Oh, that sounds like a really interesting story. Oh, I want to learn more about that. It's more like less puzzlement and more curiosity, I guess is how I would put put it.
1: Yeah, there's like, it was interesting because I think we both anticipated that because this was trying to answer some, like, very pathetic questions, that, like, he would create plot holes and stuff. Um, And I was actually surprised with how few plot holes he did create, I felt. There were a few moments where I was like, oh, this this doesn't quite make sense with what you said in Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. But, like, overall, I felt like he just kind of, like, ignored the parts of Lion, the Witch, and <laughs> the Wardrobe I felt he should ignore and, like, just didn't address them. And the parts he did address overall, I felt like answered the questions in, in interesting ways and led to more interesting questions. I think that the only like really Life uh, finds a way. annoying question that was raised for me by this book, how, so if, if Jadis is descended from Lilith and Giants, how did she get into this other world? <laughs> That's my <laughs> like irritating question. I'm like, why is she over here? Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a thing I don't mind retconning because it's just yeah. like that as an explanation of why the witch is evil is extremely lame. And it and it opens up a whole can of worms of like again, this idea of predestination that some creatures are just destined to be evil, some are destined to always be good, and there's not much wiggle room except for people apparently which is also debatable i think getting that out of the way and giving her a different completely different backstory um it makes her a lot more compelling because we see that it was more of a choice like she made the choice by saying the deplorable word that makes her so much more interesting and compelling than just saying oh she's descended from giants she's bad
1: i agree i thought she was so much more interesting of a character um i loved the way that she told her own story and didn't see anything wrong with it and i love too that she just kind of invents these stories about what's going on so like when she's asking diggory about what magician what great magician sent him to like get her she's like Oh yes your uncle must be a great king and enchanter and he saw me in a magic mirror and he fell in love with me and he sent you to get me like she's it's fascinating the way she invents the world around her and i was really fascinated and i'd love to get your thoughts on it i wonder what it says about her that she can't remember the in between place i thought that was a fascinating detail that is not explored what what does that mean
0: there's a couple of lines in there about They talk about how she is terribly practical. I think that's the phrase they use. Terribly practical. And I I think you're right where she invents the world around her. And so she's deluded. She can't see the world for what it is. She can't see Charn for what she's done to it. She can't see Narnia as anything but something to control. And I think... The in-between world is just outside of all of that. It's outside of time or conquest or any of these sort of quote-unquote practical matters that her perspective simply just can't even operate in that world. It's like she's being dumped in a place where she can't understand the language. And so nothing makes sense. And so like, if you can't understand a thing, you can't remember it. And it's like, to me, that was so much more of an effective indictment of her worldview than anything else in this book. Like, just to show her being unable to function in this place that is clearly, in some ways, a paradise.
1: Yeah, well, it's shown to be just super peaceful. And I th- I love the description of it, of a, a place you could almost hear the trees growing There's just it's like super serene and calm and peaceful. And I think, yeah, you're right. There's there's nothing there that she can relate to or understand.
0: I feel like it's it's like it's this idea of nature sort of condensed into its most fundamental point of just it is about growth and that's it. It's not there's nothing else to it. It's just
1: growth and creation.
0: Clearly, Jadis is all about controlling and destroying In order to control. So she's just completely at odds. With a place like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is good. The first half of this book. It's so much fun. And it's so compelling. Even the bits that are. Weird and problematic. But there's something interesting. You know like I, I alluded earlier. How the. All the sort of biggest examples of temptation are done by women in this story. And it's like, okay, that's problematic. But it is interesting to see the form that the temptation takes in each of these instances because it's driving at curiosity.
1: Yes, I loved that. Uh, I also wanted to bring up, just because we did talk about the little poetry in Line Logic in the Wardrobe, I think the poetry gets better. <laughs>
0: Well, he, he did have like five years to to work yeah. on these poems. So good job. He workshops those really hard.
1: Yes. So the poem on the pillar, which I think is my favorite of the two, says, make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad. What would have followed if you had? And I was like, what? a!" And I guess that's also very Pandora's box-like. But like, what a fascinating idea that like, It's not even saying that, like, something good's going to happen. It's saying, like, the bad thing is that you'll always wonder. You'll be driven mad by wondering. And I was like, you know what? If I was in Diggory's shoes, I'm not so sure that I wouldn't also, like, hit the bell. Because I'm a very curious person. And I think it would bother me. There are, like, things to this day that I didn't do that bother me. Because I'm like, what if I had done that?
0: I gotta know gotta know gotta know make 14, 4 and 4 make nine the clock is striking 13 I, think my mind you know getting I mean it really hits me in that gamer mentality of like <laughs> if there's a quest line you can explore it doesn't matter if you have to choose the worst option to make it happen you're gonna make it happen because you want to see that storyline play out.
1: Well, I think it's it's just like a longing for knowledge, which I think is an interesting revision of Eden and, you know, the tree of knowledge. It's like, yeah, it's even more than the, the gamer mentality. I think it's just like the human urge to know is so strong and it makes sense that, yeah, that's the temptation he gives into, is the urge to know and... Yeah, I I really really love
0: that scene. And like another thing, this book does that's really it's really good is that it sets up these parallels in the characters themselves. So like you know sometimes it does it explicitly, but also implicitly, it compares Diggory to Uncle Andrew, and we sort of see where curiosity taken to its fullest extent will take you, which is not a good place. Apparently, you turn into a creepy uncle that tricks kids into playing with your magical rings. Oh, God. But it's very effective in sort of painting this potential arc for Diggory, where if he continues down this path of just pursuing his curiosity at the cost of everything else, he's not going to end up in a good place. And we see there are consequences. There is that moment where when he rings the bell, he actually physically hurts Polly in the act of stopping her from going away. And as you alluded to before, Digri will say something really condescending and sexist and Polly will call him out. And we sort of see those flashpoints where he starts to sound like Uncle Andrew. These are the stakes of pursuing knowledge. These are the stakes of pursuing ambition at the cost of everything else. And it's so well done!
1: It is. And the other part that I think is, it's not only the ambition, but the idea of exceptionalism, like Uncle Andrew talks a lot about like, I'm not like other men, I'm better. And therefore, I have the right to do these things and I can disregard the rules. And Jadis does this too. And I think, again, that's something where like, Diggory sees that and begins to understand that like he, he can't make choices and put himself above other people. It's both of those things together, both of those lessons together that help him turn down the witch in the end. I just, I really, I really did love that we got strong messages this time. But they also, you know, sometimes in like kids books, it can feel like you're getting hit over the head with a message. And I I didn't feel that way with this. I felt like they were clear enough that like I immediately picked up on them and understood them, but I didn't feel condescended to or like spoon fed.
0: I'll I'll quibble with that because as <laughs> as I've talked about before I feel like there are moments where CS Lewis can't help himself but preach his values a little bit and it's like we get it you had a the <laughs> experience in school we yes. get it you think atheists are dumb
1: I will say the one moment I did think that and it's the I don't kind of want to say it because I think it's a good moment but it's also the moment where I was like this is so explicitly talking about something is in the very end where they're talking with aslan about charn and he says that they should take charn as a warning and the kids are like we're not as bad as them right and he's like not yet but you are growing more like it It is not certain that some wicked one of your race will not find out a secret as evil as the deplorable word and use it to destroy all living things. And soon, very soon, before you are an old man and an old woman, great nations in your world will be ruled by tyrants who care no more for joy and justice and mercy than Empress Jadis. Let your world beware. And I was like, okay, I can tell very much that you're talking about the atomic bomb and World War II. And that's very, very clear to me. A little too clear I was like I believe in this message and I do think it's a powerful message but it's also so so obvious that I was like <laughs> oh I get it you're writing from the future so you know these things
0: yeah I agree that that's pedantic to say the least but I was I will say because there's there's certain things that you could be pedantic about that I think are a lot more effective when you're talking about religion That's when you start losing me. But when you're talking about global threats that I mean, like, I I think an issue for us is that we're just so far removed from that experience of World War Two and experiencing like the fallout literally and metaphorically. Right. And like what that means for the world to like know that there was this event that brought the world to the brink and that. Terrible, terrible human suffering happened. <sighs> I, I, th- I think it was effective to ground this story in our own world and sort of tie it to these events. It might not be, like, n- narratively satisfying, but I think it's hard to argue against the efficacy of making that argument in the first place. Because... It is an argument that needs to be made. And I th- I feel especially kind of right now, it's a little relevant to be making.
1: Yeah. I guess it's like, I have no problem with the message. I think it's a personal... Uh... Like there's a ghost right behind me, there? Uh-huh. An issue of mine, pet peeve of mine, is like when... So for instance, in the uh, Witcher book I just read, at one point, Dandelion is like, I think someday... People will make weapons where they can kill each other without seeing each other. And then that will end all war. And I was like, see, now you're just being a smart ass. I know you as an author like are from my world. And, you know, so I, I think I personally get a little bit irritated when it's a little bit too like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I know the future and these characters don't. I will say, like, I think this handling of it was a lot better than in The Witcher because it is used to, you're right, say, uh, tie the destruction of a world in with some horrific events that happened in our world and to warn us about letting that happen in the future. So I do think it is stronger and important. I wish it had been done a little more subtly so that I didn't feel as much like C.S. Lewis was like, and now I will be able to include a warning about this and more, I guess, general so that it, it held up holds up beyond just talking about World War II and the atomic bomb because um, I think you're right. It's relevant today, too. It's a warning we should take heed of. But for me, it feels so much like he is talking about this one thing and he knows it as the author because it's happened and we as the reader, also know that it's happened. But the characters don't. I don't know. There's something about that that bothers me. But that's also my specific irritation.
0: This is good. We we finally have something to argue about. <laughs> um, so I will say that I think intention matters a lot here. In the case that you're talking about with The Witcher books, I remember that moment. It's, it's just this sort of like, uh, forgive me for using this word, masturbatory <laughs> bit of writing where it's like... <laughs> I know more than you. <laughs> yeah, But there's no greater message beyond, isn't it funny how ignorant these characters are? I think, and, and I think this is this is kind of getting into my own politics, but I think that there are certain issues that it is worth being completely on the nose about. <laughs> like, there's a time and a place to be subtle. I think for an issue like this... Now is not the time to be subtle, because we're talking. We're really talking about like the fate of our own world, and when we have gone through something like the U.S. bombing Japan and Germany establishing concentration camps, and and there's a time and place to be quiet and to be subtle about things, and then there's a time to really just shout it from the rooftops, and I know. I, I'm sure that some people are saying, well, why wouldn't that apply to its religion? Because he believes that if we don't believe in Jesus, we're going to go to hell and, and <laughs> suffer eternally. And it's like, okay, yeah, point granted there. But this this is something that I think we can all agree that humanity dying off is generally a bad thing. And we should try to avoid that as much as possible. And so I think making that direct tie from like, you, This is your world. Having that kind of reefer madness moment of like pointing into the camera and being like, <laughs> this could happen to your children. If there is ever a time to do that for this issue, that is the time. And I will give C.S. Lewis that because I, I see where you're coming from, where usually I would be just as annoyed by that. But when we're talking nuclear holocaust here, OK, I'll I'll hear you out.
1: Yeah, I guess my issue is is not so much that it's on the nose about, I guess, for, I wish it was more general in that, like, I wish we couldn't so easily dismiss it as being about World War II and the atomic bomb. Mm. I wish that I could read it now and be like, oh, maybe he's talking about what's happening right now. But like the way I read it, because like Aslan specifically says, not too far in the future, like... I'm like, ah, yes, World War II is coming up and that's what he's referencing. And I wish that I could read it to be worried about things now and that it doesn't feel like something that's already happened and therefore the warning is past. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, again, like World War II and the atomic bomb are worth warning the children about. But, like, I guess I just wish since we're all past that that it, it didn't seem like C.S. Lewis was like, and now that those things are over with and we're not doing them again, we are out of the danger zone. I don't know.
0: Well, I don't think he says that we're out of the danger zone. No, He's saying he doesn't. That, he
1: doesn't. Yeah. This is me reading into it.
0: <laughs> okay, I, I can see your point there. I do think that, at least now, who knows if this will still be the case 200 years from now, I still think the symbolism of World War II and everything it involved is still potent enough that we can apply that to our own age. So I'm thinking to bring in another book to talk about anything other than (laughs) C.S. Lewis right now. There's a moment in The Once and Future King, which is a great book. Everyone should read it. But there's a moment where King Arthur is asking Merlin about like the efficacy of military might, essentially, and... King Arthur, who who at this point of the book, he's pretty young. He actually might be a child. He's asking Merlin, you know, with all the people that just disagree with me, why don't I just kill them or just conquer them and make sure, you know, like, it doesn't matter if they disagree with me. And Merlin responds with a very pointed reference to Hitler and about the implications of that kind of thinking. And I think that, sure, the reference specifically ties it to hitler but the gravity of the situation the gravity of what's being talked about is big enough that not only can it apply to other situations but that it's like yeah you know what even if world war ii all that happened in the past we should kind of still be talking about that because really it's not that recent there are still people alive who lived through that. Yeah. And it's like, those are things still worth weighing and discussing and really considering moving forward. What kind of world do we want to build? Do we want to build a world that will become like Narnia or a world that will end up looking like charn? And I think that at the end of the day, that's the question that's being posited to readers which world do you want? Maybe, yeah, sure. The the sort of tying the deplorable word to the atomic bomb. It's like, okay, that's on the nose, but it kind of doesn't matter because the bigger question is, which world do we want? And I think in that way, that ending scene is effective.
1: Well said, Casey.
0: Can can I count this one as a win in my column? Sure. Thank you. Uh, let me get the the hip hop air horn here. Yeah. I know we're not keeping tallies, but currently we're tied one to one.
1: I don't, We've had little minor disagreements, but not no full on debate. So I guess it would be one to one.
0: This Minor I mean,
1: skirmishes.
0: This is something that our listeners are going to be the ones to determine.
1: It's like what people do in YouTube videos, too. They're like, do you agree? <laughs> Comment below.
0: Remember to like and subscribe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to subscribe, you can, but I'm not going to be personally hurt by it.
1: Yeah, do what you want, guys. No pressure. Be free. I do feel a little bad that we said at the end of Why the Witch in the Wardrobe that it was probably going to be negative from there on out. And then, like, we have this, like, very positive podcast going
0: on. I I'm wondering how many listeners just, just stopped after that first one. Yeah. Like, I feel like I we need to go back and be like, no, please.
1: Actually, we get positive. We really like the next one. Weirdly, we're both into Magician's Nephew. What a wild time 2020 is.
0: See, that's how you know the world isn't right when we started <laughs> green. Anyway.
1: That was a full digression, but... Um, I think we needed to like shift to a new topic anyways, because I think we were about done.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, I guess are there any other questions? Cause I do have a couple of questions, but do you do you have any other larger questions or issues you would like to talk about?
1: Um, let's see. I have a whole bunch of like really <laughs> annoying questions, probably. <laughs> like, I was just curious, how wealthy are all these characters? <laughs> I was like, wait, they're, like, talking about going to the sea for, like, this summer or, like, going to country houses. I'm like, how normal is this for English people at this time? Should I be considering all these people upper middle class? But then Aunt Letty is complaining about how Uncle Andrew, like, spent all her money. So I'm very confused. I don't know if this is, like, an English thing that I'm missing. But, like, I was like, are these guys wealthy?
0: You know, well, I have no answers for that. So actually yep. we it's a, it's kind of in bad taste but there's that scene at the end where it's wrapping things up and it says where everything works out because the mom eats the apples she is cured the dad has like a great uncle or somebody who dies thank god and, <laughs> and yes. the father in, inherits this huge fortune
1: and he gets to come back from india
0: Yeah, he gets to come back from India. They move to the countryside. They live happily while, theoretically, 40-some years later, the London Blitz is happening and everyone's dying in London. But thank God, things worked out for Diggory.
1: Yeah. Actually, I wanted to briefly, very briefly, touch on a little bit of... We talked about how power in the previous book, like one of the the ethos we're introduced to is the idea that like, you should just leave people alone and let them mm-hmm. live their lives. Yeah. So there's a way in which C.S. Lewis has this very like isolationist perspective. And I think that also it kind of goes along with this idealism of the country and living in these isolated little pockets. But on the other hand, there's this like blatant imperialism in some of his messages. And the fact that Diggory's dad is in India... And um, gets to come back. And him being in India is presented as a bad thing. he gets the money and he's able to come back. But I'm like, we also have like these uh, humans coming in and uh, accidentally conquering this whole other world. So like the conflicting messages of that, I still don't quite know what to do with.
0: And I'm not sure if there's anything more than to say that like, you know, C.S. Lewis is a product of his time where it was like totally chill for Brennan to go into other countries and just be like, uh, we own this place now, and not really consider the, the the people currently residing there. I think it is a point worth. Is somebody vacuuming in the background?
1: I'm so sorry. Uh, there is someone leaf blowing in front of my house. My windows are closed, but it's a very loud leaf blower. So I deeply apologize for the leaf blowing.
0: Recording podcasts in the times of pandemics. So what can you do? Yeah. Casey Mays here. Have you ever had your podcast interrupted by a leaf blower? Oh, no! Well, not to worry, because with the power of editing, you can clean up your audio. Just like that. Wowie zowie! Good as new! But yes, the way power is illustrated here and these sort of unspoken assumptions of what is good forms of power and what are bad forms of power, uh, it doesn't seem like C.S. Lewis really has much interest in exploring that. I think it's worth us exploring because, like, we do see. This idea of power very clearly illustrated with Jadis, who literally destroys her own world just to ensure that she can be the one who rules. That does seem like a classic callback, like, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven kind of idea. He seems very keen on that kind of idea of power, but he doesn't seem to notice all the other assumptions about power that he's making, where it's like yeah, it totally makes sense for the humans to come into a new world and just be like, we rule now. Yep. And then to, like, not see the kind of...
1: Some of the issues, yeah.
0: Some of the issues and some of the hypocrisy of, like, yeah, the dad is in India. What is a British dude doing in India? You know, those kind of, that unspoken suffering. It actually kind of puts me in mind of, like, this is going way out there but tony morrison had this idea about american literature that there is this sort of unspoken assumption in all of american literature that there are essentially black people operating in the background of every story and that every story can only function with these kind of passing images of black people and i'm sure i'm bungling the way she is a lot more articulate than i ever will be but and she she specifically points to this moment in The Great Gatsby where all the white characters are driving into the city and then they see uh, another car passing them that's full of black people. And that's the only mention of black people in the story. But there's this underlying assumption that this world that the people in The Great Gatsby enjoy, they can only relish in that world on the backs of the labor of people of color. That idea applies here as well, where we see this world of London and Britain and eventually the countryside where it only functions on the exploitation of other countries and other people. And it and it does actually, now that I think about it, it does seem that that C.S. Lewis recognizes that exploitation because he does spend a lot of time sort of fleshing out the cabbie as a character and showing how like the only reason he left the countryside is because he couldn't support himself there and he had to come into london to work as a cabbie to make ends meet and basically he's sort of pushed into a lifestyle that he hates because of money because of economics and so c.s lewis does seem to recognize that like Certain groups of people are being exploited, and that's making them miserable. And then he just kind of overlooks everyone. It's just uh, the whole country of India.
1: Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised that at least the person that's come in and becomes the first king and queen of Narnia, they, they are lower class people. At least it wasn't, I guess, we. I'm assuming they must be middle to upper middle class white kids. At least, you know, it's not them, I guess. If we have to have this narrative, there is a certain idea of the ruler is serving the kingdom, which deserves some critique and and thought. But at least, yes, the character of the cabbie doesn't, like, make you feel better about it, per se, but is, like, not the worst version of this.
0: If you're going to be ruled by anyone, might as well be a country
1: bumpkin. (laughs) Yeah. I think that very much there's things that C.S. Lewis just doesn't see that are operating in this book, um, and the mention of of India brings that to the forefront. Right. It's interesting. I just uh, have been reading a lot of Victorian literature and the ways in which colonialism and imperialism and stuff are just kind of ever-present, even in books where you don't leave England. So I think it's sort of the same thing here, where it's just kind of there, it's interesting to say the way that operates without the author being conscious of it happening. And I'm very, very interested to read the next book and see how that develops. Actually, I wanted to bring up the like minor retcon that this book does in talking about land and how land yes. also exists and is ruled by humans. And I was like, Yep, you didn't know Archenland existed when you wrote Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, but by now you know it exists, so you're going to have that mention. I was like, "Ah, oh, my good old Archenland. So excited to learn more about you in the next book.
0: I am glad you brought that up because when that name was just dropped in the middle of a <laughs> sentence, I'm like, what the f*** is Archenland?
1: <laughs> I don't know if your book includes a map of Narnia. It does not. Okay, mine does. I will send you a picture of this map because it's on the back page of every single um, one of this edition. But since we did talk a little bit about Narnia geography last time and we got a little bit more about Narnia geography this time, I figured we should have a geography corner. I just sent you the map so that you have it. I don't know how well you'll be able to see it. I'm
0: going to react in real time. So Morgan just sent me a picture of the map. Whoa! <laughs>
1: There's Archland It's right next to Narnia. Whoa! Yes. My God, you are so
0: embarrassing. Stop trying to be funny.
1: So, um, it's interesting because, like, I loved uh, that not only did we hear about Land for the first time in our reading order, but we also get this mention of the like North, which is this like wild area.
0: Which, according to this map here, apparently. One quarter of the north is just a giant lion's head.
1: <laughs> yes, Aslan's head is in the upper left-hand corner, just hovering there for, for no no reason. Um, I'm trying to see if it has a bubble in the north where the garden is, but if it does, I can't see it. I think that they go north, probably in Silver Chair.
0: I did write in my notes when Diggory's given the quest to go to the Garden of Eden and get the apple it's like oh so it's gonna be a half hour walk to get there um
1: morgan (laughs) yeah and then they have like oh sorry i'm wrong they didn't go north they went to the western wild i'm so sorry that is my bad that and the western wild is barely on our maps But yes, yes, they actually have to, like, sleep in between.
0: I know, isn't that amazing? They're actually
1: traversing space.
0: Yeah, they can't just stop at a beaver's house and have dinner for, like, five hours and then keep walking and make it in one day.
1: I'm just, like, continually baffled by the geography of (laughs) Narnia. Like, okay, so there's this western wild where, like, there is just this hill where on top of it is the garden. And I, I assume... This is the Garden of Eden? Like, is it actually the Garden of Eden? Was it transplanted? Why is the garden there? Was it there before he made the rest of everything? Like, or did he just choose to make the garden out in the western Wild? What? How?
0: Why? I have so many questions!
1: These are the sort of questions that, like, I'm not hugely bothered by. But, like, if I start thinking about geography of Narnia too much, I get very confused. Also, is Narnia... Because he introduces Arch and Land, I'm like, is Narnia just the country, or is Narnia also the name of the land? And why has he already made two countries?
0: Yeah, I mean, and then it's also just like, why why would he create a world wherein he has to give this quest to a kid that just showed up and why couldn't he theoretically do it himself since he apparently is all powerful i have so many questions and, uh, it's like okay well if if you look too closely at that like
1: it's like yeah it's
0: <laughs> everything falls apart
1: i think it, he does a decent job of making you not look too closely at it except for like when he mentions arch and land i think that that he wanted to explain where Archimand came from, and I think that's one of the things he tries to fix that I'm like, ah!
0: Yeah, yeah again, I, I mean, let's give the dude credit. Like, yeah. Magician's Nephew, like any other prequel, <laughs> Rogue One, oh uh, it could have been a disaster. And the fact that he avoided so many of the common pitfalls of prequels And in the cases where maybe he should have thought better, the fact that he didn't do it as badly as he could have, it's like, that's a huge credit to him. Like the fact that I liked this book at all.
1: I know, I'm astounded. Well, and you would have gone on record saying you remember distinctly not liking the Narnia creation story. So
0: actually, that is a good thing that you brought it up because...
1: You still don't like the creation story I still story don't part.
0: like it because, and this is the way I see it. So I love the world of Charn. I love the in-between place. I, they, they're new and fascinating to me. And then we get into the Bible. And it's like, okay, I'm very familiar with this story. I went to church as a kid. I heard this story over and over and over. So I'm very familiar with it. And I'm like, okay, there's the moment where there's the world, but everything's dark because there's no light. And then he says, let there be light, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, okay, I get that. And then he's like, then there's the animals. It's like, okay, okay, I get it. And then there's all these in-betweens of, like, Uncle Andrew's running around. And it's like, okay, I get it. You're still creating the world's still being created. And it's like, okay, I get it, I get it. Point is, I think the original did it better.
1: Well, I... I want to pause here. I actually think there was something interesting that I noticed this time that I, I don't know if this if I'm making too much of a leap of logic. So I'd like your opinion on it. Oh, I but have I opinions. Thought it was interesting that the cabbie sings this hymn. And then it's only after that that Aslan starts singing. So I was like, did the cabbie call God into this world? Like, is that what happened? Ooh, and I was like, and then I loved that it was singing that created the world. I thought that part was very cool. I know some versions of Christianity kind of have that art interpretation already, but I did like that it was singing. But yeah, I I thought it was interesting that we're deliberately told that the cabbie sings a hymn and then the world is created.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there, there are many possibilities here. Did the cabbie call Aslan? Maybe. Is cabbie actually God and created <gasps> Aslan? who then created the world uh which would make sense it's like why why would aslan make this guy king it it makes just too much sense it's an evil conniving plan to make himself king of this world and it's oh like
1: my... no 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 <laughs> no
0: but but yeah i i noticed that too and i'm like why is that a thing to me it seems like one it's it's like because it's like a country him and it's like okay there's the one aspect of like it's inserting christianity into this moment to really make that connection explicit which is like okay that's dumb it's pretty explicit already but you can also tie it to the country aspect of like he sings this hymn praising the countryside or whatever and then we see after that moment we see the most amazing perfect countryside just appear out of nowhere I don't. I don't think that moment's really interesting to to me personally. And like the whole creation myth isn't that interesting because I've seen it before, I've read it before. This version is just longer, and it's like, I mean, I've I've made a couple references to this. So in a New Hope, in Star Wars, a New Hope, there is a line where somebody explains this flaw in the design of the Death Star and it's just one throwaway line to explain the situation and that's all we needed. Fast forward 40 some years later and Disney execs decide actually we need a two-hour film explaining that one line and what we get is an abomination of a film but bringing it back to Narnia I feel like there's some of that happening here where we have this story told in Genesis about how the world came to be. And it's actually a very compact story. It's like, don't quote me on this, but it's like 30 some verses to tell how the world began. And then here we get all these different asides about Uncle Andrew and the animals talking and telling jokes. And the point is, it just dragged for me.
1: I think that the comic moments in this book are probably my least favorite parts of it. Both like the comic moments of uh, Jadis in our world, and then the comic moments with Uncle Andrew in Narnia. I think both of, all of those moments, I feel like while they're like kind of charming and amusing on their own, like the serious moments, once again, I think Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the same way. The serious impactful moments were so much stronger than a lot of the other moments. And, like, here, yeah, the time and charm is really strong. I think the Diggory's encounter with the witch in the garden is very strong. I really like the descriptions of uh, the world being made. I think that that's more of just, like, Clive just flexing his descriptive muscles. And so I really enjoyed those scenes. And then the in-between plays, like, the same thing. It's very beautiful and evocative. But I, I do agree. I think what dragged for me were the comic moments. And they just didn't fit as well i wish they'd been shorter or removed
0: yeah it's just it's fluff and i mean this is a very short book i mean my version is like 80 180 some pages like it's a very very short book and if i feel like if you took out all those dumb dumb scenes with all the jokes being told or whatever like you would easily lose 30 40 pages from this book
1: well, then, but maybe he could have spent more time with them traveling across Narnia. I mean, I wouldn't have minded a few more pages of them seeing this newly awakened world. And, you know, maybe you get even there was just a very small mention of like there's a there's a bird in the apple tree. The bird. Like, I was like, what is that? whoa. What is that? Why is that there? Like, I would love to know more about this bird. I would have loved to see the bird talk. Maybe there could have been a conversation between Diggory and the bird. I don't know. I'm not saying that's necessary. It's just like, I think there were things that could have been expanded that I would have enjoyed. And even um, another question I was left with at the end of the book that's an irritating question is they plant this apple tree and it says, as long as this is standing, then Narnia will be protected from the White Witch. We know at some point then this tree must have been cut down. I would have loved even just like when he's wrapping stuff up for him to be like when he's talking about how the cabbies children go on to rule Narnia and Archenland. And uh, I want to just pause and say here he explicitly says they like have babies with the Dryads and Nyads and stuff. So that we know there's no incest happening. Like, thanks, Clive. I did have that question.
0: I was thinking the same thing. It's like, oh, those babies, they're going to be getting it on with each other because how they're going to produce more children. But then that also leads to pause on that for a second, because in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's established that, like, basically only humans are capable of transitioning from good or evil. So, theoretically, by diluting the bloodline of humanity, does that mean that eventually their descendants lose their free will?
1: I, I, uh, yeah, (laughs) but If you take any of these things too far, that happens. But yeah, I would have I would have liked something about how their dynasty ended. Like, clearly it did, and that led to this tree being cut down and the White Witch coming in. Like, their line is lost, as far as I can tell. We might get more about this in Prince Caspian. In fact, I'm pretty sure we will. But, like, there were just some some areas where I felt like, you know, he could have maybe added something here, and maybe we didn't need to spend as much time with... You know, the animals trying to plant Uncle Andrew. I didn't need them, like, throwing honeycomb in his face. Yes. Like, it was funny, but, like, it just wasn't nearly as important as everything else. And, you know, maybe, maybe kids, since this is for the children. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? But you know what? I, I will say, when I was rereading this, I remember liking the charm bits best. Because I thought it was kind of like magical and spooky. And like, as a kid, I remember thinking that was cool.
0: It's it's very evocative. And that's I think that's the stuff that sticks with you. Apparently, it didn't stick with me the first time around. But I, I don't know what the explanation it for that is. It didn't stick
1: with me either. All I remembered was the world hopping, which is also cool. So you know what? Go young me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, I mean, the, some of the jokes, they did work. There was one. I do want to point out one joke. Because it's both the best and the worst part of this book where all the animals have chased down Uncle Andrew and they're all discussing like, what do we do with this dude? Who is this guy? And then the elephant is like talking about how Uncle Andrew doesn't have a nose and and, and she's like, my nose is so sexy. And then the bulldog says, I object to that remark very strongly. And And I'll admit that got a chuckle out of me it's like okay i like the idea of a bulldog saying that and apparently c.s lewis liked that as well because he makes the same joke two more times
1: yeah (sighs) i mean at least he did it three times so at least he's following the rule of three if he'd just done it two times i would have been like uh.
0: Well, I think we've established a rule of four now with the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in Aslan thing.
1: Holy Lion! Yeah,
0: the Holy Lion. Um, but it, I, I think C.S. Lewis thinks he's funnier than he actually is. Or, well, thought. He's dead now, so.
1: <laughs> he has some funny moments, yeah. I think he's the most funny when he's not trying to be funny. Um, the whole thing with the jackdaw telling the first joke is, like, vaguely amusing, but like not funny you know what i mean
0: yes i it's i did think about that because like if you've never heard a joke before theoretically that would be the funniest thing you've ever heard so maybe maybe it 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 works but it also really doesn't work it's just a dumb joke and I also don't know why he says no fear. That's a that's a weird line of dialogue that gets repeated throughout the book, and at first it's just the two kids saying it, and it's like, okay, maybe this is just something the kids say to each other. Meaning Polly and Diggory. But then the Jackdaw says it and it's like, did the Jackdaw hear the kid saying that? Like, why is the Jackdaw saying no fear? It's like I don't I don't get that. So all the humor is just kinda dumb as it's always been kind of dumb in these books so far. CS Lewis is clearly at his best when he is exploring some dark shit. CS Lewis has some bit of an emo vibe in him that really works well <laughs> on the page and and I'd wish he he focused more on that because that is clearly where he is strongest. Then again, The Last Battle.
1: You know what? Now that we love this book Maybe we'll love The Last Battle. Like, (sighs) it's all up in the air, Casey.
0: Do you think that everything... So, like, theoretically, everything we've predicted is just going to be the opposite. So you're going to hate Horse and His Boy. If I hate
1: Horse and His Boy, I'm going to be so sad. I I know already, and, like, all the people that are listening, I've made veiled references. The racism in Horse and His Boy I know is a thing, and I know I'm not going to like it. We're clear on this. I... And excited about it for other reasons. And there's, like, I don't think I'll hate one part of it, which is the relationship between our main characters in that book. I remember being, like, my favorite part. So, like, pretty sure I'm still going to love that. But, like, really could be that it's so racist that I hate all of it. Um, and we'll find out uh, next next time. But yeah, I'm very curious because I'm, like, okay. I, I haven't ever given my, like, definitive ranking. But, like... Yes, my favorite was Horse and His Boy, and my second favorite was Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and my third favorite was Prince Caspian, and then followed by Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. After there, it gets a little bit murky as to what was my least favorite. Silver Chair, I reread the least, so I would guess that was my very least favorite, and probably Last Battle and Magician's Nephew fought it out for spots five and six. But yeah, it could be, like, I have a feeling I'm really gonna like Silver Chair. I think that is also a really dark book and really creepy, from my memory, but it could be that I like hate Prince Caspian since that was supposedly like the second book he completed. It could be that a lot of the issues of the first book are are very present there. So I, yeah, I'm very, I'm very both excited, but worried that some of my favorites, I'm not going to like as much. And I'm excited to like books that I didn't like.
0: That's one consolation.
1: Yes. If nothing else. I really enjoyed Magician's W. Well, so on that note,
0: like I'm just going to say to save myself the disappointment that I'm predicting I'm going to hate the rest of these books and that it's all going to be downhill from here. And uh, hopefully I get pleasantly surprised.
1: I will put money that you like Voyage of the Dawn Treader.
0: How much money?
1: I don't know. (laughs) Next time we're able to get food together, I'll pay for your meal. There you go.
0: That's very sweet.
1: And if you like Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I guess now you have to pay for my meal. Oh, God.
0: I didn't agree to that.
1: <laughs> you have to bet both I ways. I
0: Uh. Yeah.
1: I, I think Voyage of the Dawn Treader will hold up. But yes, this book, Pleasant Surprise.
0: Really fascinating stuff. This is a book that I could see myself rereading again. Like, And I think that's the highest praise that I could possibly give it. I will never read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again. This book, I probably will, because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here, including the fact that Polly (laughs) pees.
1: And I will say in terms of um, I wanted to I think this is my last note I haven't covered, but there was actually a moment of like on the nose, C.S. Lewis making a comment about Christianity that I did actually enjoy. And I wanted to call it out. You probably hated this moment, but I think. Polly is talking with Strawberry slash Fledge and oh Diggory and Polly are both talking with him and they're talking about like meals <laughs> and Diggory's like well I wish Aslan would have arranged our meals and, and uh, oh, Fudge is yeah. like I, I, I liked this about. moment and Fledge is like I'm sure he would have if you asked and Polly's like wouldn't he know without being asked and then Fledge says I have no doubt he would but I've a sort of idea he likes to be asked. And I was like, you know what? That is a that is an okay, overt thing about God. I just I liked the the idea of it. That like, yes, he does know, but he likes being asked. I was like, I I liked that.
0: You wanna you wanna know what I wrote for that <laughs> moment as well. The first note is Aslan is a needy lion. <laughs> Two well, it's it's a long diatribe about, like, how it's kind of a situation of, well, you didn't ask.
1: Well, no, I mean, I think that the, a nicer way of looking at it is, like, it's like how your, you know, your family and friends will always help out if you need them, whatever. But, like, it's nice to ask, and it's nice for someone to ask for your help. Like, it's, it's a nice thing.
0: Yeah, I suppose, and I think this is, obviously, this is reflective of my own personal bias, I don't think I discussed this, but I was raised Christian, I went to church, and I had a falling out. And in my mind, that bit of doctrine, it just puts me in the mind of sinners in the hands of an angry God, you know, where we we are just at the mercy of this all-powerful figure who can choose to help us but simply won't if we don't beg for help. So it, it rubs me the wrong way. But I acknowledge there's bias there.
1: And it's okay. I mean, different people can read that line different ways. And I think that I I read the way that's meant very differently than you because of, yeah, outside influence.
0: Yeah, it is totally okay for you to completely buy into Christian propaganda. That's okay. (laughs) To be more positive about it, I think that... C.S. Lewis does a much better job of tying his values and his and his religion into this book in a way that illustrates it without always necessarily being pedantic, And it it allows you to sort of explore the idea of Christianity in a bit of a more complex way, in a more fulfilling way than I think the line, the witch and the wardrobe allowed, because... That first book is extremely blunt in its in its Christian dogma. This one, it's more like okay, here here's here's a sense of it. Let's think it through and apply it in this situation and sort of see how it plays out. S- clearly, C.S. Lewis is a very smart man. And again, screw tape letters, one of my favorite stories ever. I don't mind that he's a Christian. I just want him to be more willing to explore that, and I think he does in this book, in in, in a way that's a lot more fruitful the, than the last book.
1: Ha, fruitful.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, but I think I mean uh we talked a little bit last time about how there there was no way to interpret anything differently in *Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe* because it's such a like. Yeah, not exact one-to-one, but, like, very one-to-one. And there's certainly some pretty one-to-one moments in this book. But even, like, with the garden, I was thinking about, in Greek mythology, the garden of apples um, that a name I'm forgetting that Hercules has to go into and take an apple from. And, like, even, like, that moment, I was like, I feel like there there was slightly more room here to interpret in ways that weren't, just the Bible, if you wanted to, and there were. It, I'm gonna like fully transition, but I, I, I kind of wanted to wrap up talking about this because um, I, it was an interesting concept, and I want us to be looking for it going forward. But I read this article that posited that the Chronicles of Narnia, each one of the each one of the books represents one of the seven deadly sins, and posited um, that Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, represented gluttony with like Edmund and the Turkish Delight. Um, Which I don't, I I wasn't convinced by that particular argument, but then posited that this book... It would make
0: sense, though, because gluttony is the dumbest deadly
1: sin. (laughs) But it posited that this book was about wrath, which I I did buy, actually. I think that a lot of this book is about Diggory's anger at his own helplessness and obviously Jadis' own anger and him overcoming that and, like, not being that person anymore who just lashes out at people and things and I don't know I just thought it was an interesting interesting idea um and I'm I I remember which of the other books is supposed to correlate to what the same so we can see if we agree or don't but I was like that's an interesting like Christian interpretation of these books that I I could be into reading
0: and I I feel like I should add a caveat to my my original one-to-one comment, and that I think that, like, I, I'm sure that maybe there were, were some influences from Greek mythology in that Garden of Eden scene. To me, it's just the Garden of Eden. But there's more allowance of exploring the ideas represented by the Garden of Eden. There's more of a look into, well, what does it mean to be tempted? What does it mean To have this apple that will grant you what you want, but will also lead to eternal suffering as a result. And so it takes the original concept that's illustrated in the Bible and blows it up. It elevates it and does more with it than just saying, well, Aslan equals Jesus, ergo he comes back to life. There's not much else happening there. You, de- you don't really get a deeper appreciation for either Aslan or Jesus as a result of that moment. Here, at least for me, I have a much deeper appreciation for what it means to be tempted. I have a much deeper appreciation for the Garden of Eden story, to to have it played out with the witch playing as the serpent here. So it's not so much that having a direct allegory is bad. It's a matter of what you do with that allegory. And in this case, he actually does something with the allegory beyond just being like, Jesus, yeah. Yes. That's. I guess that's that.
1: Yes. <laughs> Woo! I'll just close by saying, um, I'm going to read the other piece of poetry that we haven't covered. So I want to make sure that in any episode that's covering a book that has poetry in it we read every single piece of poetry so here is what is written on the golden gates come in by the gold gates or not at all take up my fruit for others or forbear for those who steal or those who climb my wall shall find their heart's desire and find despair snaps indeed the first time where he's varied the rhyming structure so it's not a a b b but a b a b
0: oh this is a wow. development wow
1: but yeah I'm very happy that we read this in the place we did and that we read it at all. And I'm so happy that uh we we both have new differing like opinions from our previous selves.
0: It's it's truly an accomplishment of this podcast and the whole point really. Yes. I'm glad it worked out.
1: Me too. Very excited to read Horse and His Boy. Gonna you might potentially see me crying on this podcast <laughs> next time. If it's not good, I'll cry. But I think it's gonna be good. I'm very excited.
0: I literally have no memories of this book. I guess there's a horse and a boy in it. That's all I know. I guess I'm excited for it too.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah. I I really hope it holds up, but we'll see.
0: We'll see. This whole podcast is built to disappoint. So just join me, Morgan. Expect disappointment.
1: No, and be no.
0: pleasantly surprised. I still think the mom should have died. I'm gonna leave off on that note.
1: <sighs> See you next time with either me crying or me being really pumped.
0: Hasta la vista. <laughs> <laughs>